Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Chase. Welcome to the show. You know, it is not a secret that 10 years ago, no more than 10 years ago now, when I started this podcast, I started it for um, very personal, almost even selfish reasons. I want, I was hungry for knowledge that was beyond just the knowledge that I was seeing in other photographers and other creators. And I, what if I could expand the swath, the net of ideas, information, inspiration, you know, from all kinds of different corners of the globe, from all kinds of different people. And so at first, naturally, I reached out to friends who were in other industries. And then as the show expanded, I went, uh, reached out to people who were not necessarily my friends, people that I look up to or that I wanted to connect with. And it was a nice mutual trade. Like, Hey, I I'm bringing you on this popular show. You're, you know, moving a book or putting forward an idea into pop culture that really deserves to be heard. And everyone, and all these things are still true, but every once in a while, I just get to have a buddy on. And in many of the cases, looking backwards, like a lot of the folks that I have had on the show either turned into incredible friends or were really incredible friends from other disciplines. So short story too long, I've had all kinds of guests from lots of different industries, but every once in a while I get to have an actual homie that I've been buddies with for like 15 years. And that is today's episode with my dear friend, Nabil Ayers. Now, Nabil, um, it's not going to surprise you because so many of my close friends are multi-hyphenates. They're you know, they've mastered so many different areas of creativity and entrepreneurship. And that's one of my favorite things about Nabil, despite just being a badass, awesome human. And you'll get this like two minutes in, you'll understand what a sweet, kind, super smart, uh, and humble, talented person that Nabil is. Um, but a little background. So he is the GM of beggars group music label for a D uh, and if you're not a music nerd, or I'll just say in lay, layperson's terms, that's the label behind some of my personal favorite bands like The National, um, Big Thief, Grimes, Future Island, St. Vincent. Uh, they even did a, a reissue of the Pixies album, Doolittle, which is one of the best albums of all time, which was recently certified platinum. So to say he's a music executive, it leaves a lot out of the picture. Um because he's he is so connected to the music and he was also named by billboard magazine as one of the indie power players whatever that means you start to get a picture of uh nabil now peel back another layer he started a independent record store in seattle at age 25 which was like the place to be all the cool like little underground shows would happen there um all the best vinyl was on sale there um he ultimately ended up selling that business in 2016 but what's also not in his formal bio is he's an amazing musician. Uh, he was the drummer in a, an iconic Seattle band called the, to the long winters, which was at the heart of the indie music scene in Seattle. So many members of the long winters have gone off to done, uh, done other huge projects that you would know about. Um, so aside from all of that, what he has, um, emerged another like area of mastery that he is, um, Mike has launched recently is he's an amazing writer. And, um, so you take this guy who's an executive, he's an artist at his core, and now he started writing most recently about music, creativity, and race, the intersection of these three things. And he's done this for the New York times, NPR, GQ, 
Uh, and he's got a memoir coming up uh, with Viking here next year that we're going to get an early, uh, an early look at. Again, the benefit of having a friend like this on the show who is, you know, such an open book, a great storyteller, so freaking smart and good at so many different things, is that we get to cover a lot of range, the, the range of how to leave one career and start another, how to have a day job and a side hustle. Because he, remember, he's a record executive and he is a world-class writer. That's right. He started writing for the New York Times and PRGQ and just got a book deal. And what we get to retrace across, again, all these sort of um, parallel, sometimes overlapping and crossing threads is a lot of really powerful uh, cultural narrative. Uh, Nabil is also, he has a white mother and a black father. And we get to talk about the role that race plays, not just in his writing, but in the current times, in music. And we get to share some of his writing on that topic and many, many, many others. Anyway, short story, a bit too long here because I know you want to hear from Nabil. I just, it's hard for me to put a pin in the so many ways that there's value in this conversation for you. So I'm going to get out of the way. I uh, can't wait for you to um, fall in podcast love with my dear friend, Nabil Ayers. So I'm going to get out of the way. Before we do, just a super quick word from Creative Live, and then we're on to the show. Hey, y'all. Hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, Frankly, nothing even comes close, and it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I, I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close and you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts okay that's it that's my soapbox that is the commercial and we'll hope to see you over creative life now let's get back to the show welcome mr nabil Ayers, to the show nabil welcome bud thank you what an intro <laughs> nine and a half minutes of just yeah yeah listen praise well, we've no. got a lot of years behind us we do. And uh, you look good. It's nice to see you. Thanks. I mean, I'm in California, so, you know, I feel good. <laughs> Normally in Brooklyn, right? We yeah, just, yeah. As we were chatting, you were saying you, you had to get out of Brooklyn uh, and L.A. has been really nice. What's the, yeah. what's the panda pandemic been like for you? It's It's been weird. I mean, just like everybody else. I mean, my wife and I are lucky to be healthy and employed and very fortunate for that. But, you know, we live in a one bedroom apartment in, in Brooklyn. So it got really cramped once we started working from home. So we have family in Los Angeles, a lot of friends and it's, there's a lot of space here. So we were lucky enough to, to brave the flight, which was not that bad. And, and now we're just sort of laying low in a different, more spacious place. And it's nice. Did you guys get out, get out early? So many of my friends were that are in NYC, just like they tried to bear it for like a month, just in case they didn't have yeah. to uh, shut the place down. <laughs> and then by like early April, everyone was wigging out. Yeah, no, we wigged out. We got out late. We've only been gone a week, so it's been <laughs> it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> but we're still getting along. It's a great test. I mean, it you know it could be worse. 
Yeah, and but, uh, congr congratulations. I was scrolling through your IG feed a while ago, maybe two weeks ago or so when we set up this broadcast and uh, was just looking at some photographs from your wedding of you and Allie and man, congratulations. We haven't thanks. spent that much time since yeah. you guys t together since you, you guys tied the knot. Uh, right. Your, fo your photographer crushed it. I don't either <laughs> oh, that you guys thanks. are like some of the most photogenic people in the world. But It's uh, a combination of the two, right? <laughs> You know, it's, it's, there's a funny thing. I remember the last time we hung out was it was my wife, now wife, AJ was my girlfriend at the time. You were in New York and the three of us went to dinner and kind of just like did the town and went to a bunch of bars and everything. And we kept running into celebrities. And I think like <laughs> what people think always happens in New York and L.A., but doesn't that often really did happen to us. And we were at the uh, bar in the Bowery Hotel and uh, Saint Vincent we ran into, we ran into St. Vincent, right. She came up to us, which is even <laughs> hey, cooler. And obviously exactly. I used to work with her. And yeah, I was but like, that, oh that was gosh, amazing. And but she then, didn't like, it wasn't just like a walk by. She like sat down <laughs> right, and hung out for like 30 right. minutes and we we're like, Hey, we got to go. <laughs> yeah. But we were at, uh, at that Japanese restaurant where we had dinner, where, where Patty Smith is known to eat. So it's not that odd that she would be there. And of course she was, but then, but the weirdest part about all this that I'm maybe taking it too far by connecting it to anything is uh someone was walking out behind me i couldn't tell because i couldn't see him but he pointed over my shoulder at my wife and said are you ready for the revolution and then he walked out and it was jake gyllenhaal <laughs> and now here we are do you remember that in the revolution yeah we are and he was standing right there and he smiled at me and stopped and i'm like <laughs> right. why is jake gyllenhaal stopping at our table yeah. and he literally then points, at, points at aj and was like you ready for the revolution? Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, what just happened? Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if she way. answered, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Do you remember? No. Anyway, yeah. ran, random. Uh, that was, a, that was such a, such a great night. What's the name of that sushi joint? You, you don't uh, say it out loud probably because it, it's going to overrun with people. Oh, right. Yeah. I'll tell you after. Okay. I'll yeah. I, 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 uh, it's on my list. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we got to, there's so many different ways we can take our conversation. That's yeah. um, a sign of some of my favorite conversations of all time. My favorite guests are ones like yourself, where we can literally talk about your career as an artist, your life as an entrepreneur, um, your uh, curatorial skills, your adventure, given, you know, having traveled the world, um, you know, living by coastal. Um, the intersection of working with so many amazing talents, like just yeah. osmosis and, and being around incredible humans. You, you tick so many um, metaphorical boxes for people that I like to spend time with and that the world, uh, again, I'm just seeing people chiming in here from speaking of the world from all over. We've got Auckland. We've got always, this, there's always some South Africa in the house, huh. London, Cincinnati, Ohio wants to know right. the house. It's a national. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but I find that, that, um, the questions that I could ask you cover such a broad spectrum, but I want to go, since we are in a very unique time, I want to start at, uh, maybe a different spot than, um, I would normally start out. And I think I can do this because we're, we're longtime buddies and we're just sipping coffee here on a yeah. morning is it on a Tuesday morning. Um, You've recently recently written um, a handful of pieces about race and music. The New York Times and PR, uh, and you, you know, every once in a while, you'll text me one of these things, and they've, they've just been stunning. And I think you have a really unique perspective. Oh, and I'm wondering if you. you can if you can share a little bit about what you've been writing, 
uh, and why? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think. If I take it back, I mean, I was, I was a terrible student, which I think is an interesting thread to all of this, but it, it makes more sense now. I got terrible grades in high school, was lucky enough to get into a good college somehow still. Um, I went to the University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma, just outside of Seattle. Also did fairly poorly there, but while I did poorly in school, I discovered what I was really into, which was DJing on the college radio station, playing in bands, putting on shows, doing all these things that my friends thought were silly, but now, you know, they're lawyers and doctors and I'm doing this. And it turns out we all knew what we were doing. So, so there's that, but, but weirdly in college, the two A's that I got, and I only got two A's were in writing classes. And it wasn't because I worked harder because they were more important. It was just because I really enjoyed them and it felt like it came naturally and it was fun and I loved it. So that was kind of that. And then that went away for a while. Then I graduated from college and started working in a record store and played in bands and did all the stuff I wanted to do, which was great. Um, and when I was in one of these bands, a band called The Lemons in Seattle, and this is like 1995, I think, um, we got arrested in the middle of the desert with a bunch of pot in our van. And I didn't even smoke pot. It wasn't mine, but I was in possession. Um, whole thing handcuffed. It's a really long, crazy story that I won't get into now. But since then, I started telling it all the time and telling it in great detail because there's so many weird ins and outs. And I, I really enjoyed telling it and people enjoyed hearing it. And I always meant to write it in my head. I was like, well, I like writing and I have the story. Wouldn't it be fun to write it just for the hell of it? But I never did. And then out of the blue, four or five, maybe four years ago, I was on a flight to London from New York. It's really long. No internet, didn't want to do work, wasn't tired, didn't want to watch movies. And I was like, I think now is the time. I'm just going to start writing that story um, and not think about the audience or who might read it. No one might ever read it. I just want it to exist. And that's the whole reason I did it. And that allowed me to really sort of pull back the, the insecurity of the fact that someone might see it or judge it. So I really just wrote it as if I were telling it, which I'd done so many times. And I ended up really just typing and typing for the whole flight and then the whole time in London. I'd stay up really late because I was jet lagged and I kept going. And when I got back, I'd written 80 or 90 pages, which was just crazy to me. It was, you know, it was long and it was detailed and I'd gotten into, you know, earlier parts and why I was in this band and who these people were and everything. And, and it was just so fun. And I still didn't want to show it to anyone. I was like, this is not refined at all. I don't even know what this is, but I know there's something happening in me suddenly where this just feels fun and natural and I want to keep doing it. So only thing I could think to do at that point was take a writing class. So I'm in New York. It was easy to find something. I did like a, you know, Monday nights, seven to 10, 10 people of all ages and races sitting in a room with one teacher who basically just forced us to write and, and read a lot every week. Um, and a lot of stuff started to come out through that. And that led to me kind of shoving aside that band story and getting more into shorter things. And, and really the catalyst was around that same time, my partner and I, Jason, sold Sonic Boom, our record store in Seattle. And I'd written a bunch of Sonic Boom stories just about the crazy things that happened in a record store, <laughs> especially in the early days, you know, really fun yeah, times. Seattle. And, uh, wow. and yeah. so finally I was like, this is, this is a weird moment. And it really, I don't know how else to explain it, except it just all felt very natural and obvious to me. I was like, now is the time I think I could maybe get away with trying to publish something because I have a reason. Up till that point, it felt very egotistical, maybe that's the word, to be like, what, well, I'm just going to write about myself and put it out there and, and people are supposed to care. But in a weird way, Sonic Boom, even though it was ours, kind of felt like it belonged 
to all of our customers and to Seattle and a lot of people. And yeah. the story was about all of that. And so I talked to Sean Nelson, who was the music editor at The Stranger, the sort of alternative weekly in Seattle, and just said, you know, we're selling the store. I'd love to publish a short piece that's just kind of a historical, my days at Sonic Boom. Do you want to see it? And he's just like, yes, I'll run it. I was like, what? Oh, he's like, yeah, send it to me. <laughs> no, no, you have to read it first. And he's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember feeling just terrified. And you know that feeling of like, really? Oh, I, I, I've played in bands for years and we can get into all this, but I was always the drummer, which to me was never putting myself out there. The singer, the person up front with the microphone who wrote the words and talked about their feelings, that was, you know, that was the person putting themselves out there. And suddenly I felt more like that person. I was terrified. But they ran it and it went great and I got really great feedback from people. And uh, and so that's really what kind of got it started was having a reason and realizing it's OK to kind of tell stories. Well, this is a I love the way that you just got into this narrative because you just retraced your emotional arc for putting, <laughs> you know, putting something, especially something in a new area, uh, a new discipline that you hadn't really been. And let's just for people who are watching and listening and again, chiming in from all over the world, I want to say hi to everybody out there. Please keep sharing your comments. I will forward some on to Nabil here. Um, but what it has gone unsaid is that you're incredibly talented at everything you touch. And so it's not surprising to me that you could be an amazing entrepreneur, start this iconic record store in Seattle, um, have a esteemed career as a musician, play in some critical bands, um, and so of course it seems to me that y anything you touch, you'd be good at, but I want to retrace your personal <laughs> journey. Did you feel like you were good? Did you feel like this had merit? Did you, were you judging yourself? Like, let's go one layer deeper because right now, right. I mean, let me give you the why behind the question right now, there are, let's just say a thousand people who are listening or watching and they've all got something inside themselves. They're right. good at something in life and they know they're good at something. They don't, maybe that it's something that culture doesn't um, value, or maybe there's a little bit of resentment or maybe they're pursuing their dream, but they've, they've burned out a little bit and they want to do something different. And so right. let's just say there's a thousand people who are listening or watching that have that feeling. And I was hoping that you could talk about your experience as if you're talking to them. Right. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I was in a lucky position and I feel like I have been because I've always sort of juggled a bunch of plates. And so however you look at it, when I, when Jason and I owned Sonic Boom, I played in bands. When I played in bands, I owned Sonic Boom. I also had my own small record label where I put out records by bands I really like. But Sonic Boom, I guess, was that's what I did for a living. So it allowed me to be in a band and to take more risks there or to put out records by a band I really loved that I might lose a couple thousand dollars on but I wasn't making a living from that. So it was okay. So I've always been really lucky in that perspective and that whatever my next thing has been, it's not like I'm going to quit my job and do this. I don't think I've really ever done that except when I moved to New York, I guess I did. But, but that's, there's always been that, that little bit of a safety net and that I'm not putting all of my eggs in this basket, but, but, um, but that's the unsung narrative that actually, if you ask the thousand entrepreneurs, everybody thinks the entrepreneur is like, okay, I'm going all in and bet it all on black, right, roll right. the dice, take the second mortgage out, right. from everybody from yourself to Richard Branson and everybody in between. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, I had this going on the side. There were side bets and they were small and I was getting that right. courage and, and okay, this is helpful. Keep going. So, so that's really made, you know, made me feel more secure and I guess in the risks that I've taken, but 
but yeah there is this uh, writing was really the thing that like where i the sort of emotional investment was there where even the sonic boom thing which the, you know that story that i published in the stranger is just mostly just funny stuff about whatever fred durst came in the store and there are all these rock stars and we split thai food for lunch because we had no money you know but it wasn't deeply personal but but what happened after that is i just kept writing and i was taking these classes and of course they really push you to to write more personal things and so i was doing all that again thinking no one would ever see it or no one had to see it and my wife who is a longtime writer knew i was doing that she hadn't even seen a lot of it but she's like you know look the sonic boom thing is great the stuff you're publishing is great she's like that's what people really want to hear and when you're really going to get somewhere is when you start talking about yourself and go a layer deeper and talk about the more serious personal stuff because you've had an interesting life and people would appreciate that and that is i mean that was a 30 second conversation and that's what pushed me to really think okay i should talk about race and my childhood not things that i wouldn't say i had a hard life but i think i had an interesting life and so doing that was much harder and really felt like i was sort of exposing myself and revealing myself um but i guess to an extent it's working or it's worked <laughs> and i don't feel i mean the biggest risk is is seriously at least with this particular thing and with a lot of things i think for the people who are listening is you know why would anyone care what i have to say that's that's the, the self-conscious thing that I think a lot of us have, that most people have in some respect is I can say you... this and I can live it. But for me to just write it down or film it or do whatever it is and put it out there for people to judge, why would anyone care? Or are they just going to tear me down? I think we're, we're living in a culture now that's increasingly um, curious because we have a lens on lives that we never had before. Just think about vlogging like people. Casey Neistat right. carried a camera around every day and put a video every day for five years of his life. <laughs> You know, that's like bonkers, right? That And yeah. yet that single-handedly propelled him from, you know, uh, I would call it just a relatively, uh, let's say a, a, a filmmaker, you know, he did some stuff with HBO, right. but to, you know, someone who was um, a leader in the creative industry and, um, and created a new living and life for him. And so if so many people are conscious like what do i have to say why me right what 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 were your answers to yourself around those questions why right. you right why, why, why <laughs> you? Still, i think i'm still learning but at least it's 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 been positive as i go and i think each time i put another thing out there this positive reinforcements exist and, and the weird thing is the so the first thing that i put out there that felt very personal was after i had that conversation with my wife was this, this statement, I guess, is there's no better way to put it. I wrote a piece um, about sort of my racial identity and my feelings. On, and my father, very simply, my father is black, my mother is white. Grew up with my mother in very diverse and then mostly white surroundings. Never really had a, a black influence in my life, um, but I'm half black. And I wrote this piece that kind of is just about that. And I'm not even sure what the thesis is. It's more just that I've been lucky and it's okay. and I have this identity and thought about where to pitch it, which I'd never done really other than this piece of luck in the stranger. And NPR has a vertical called code switch, which is an incredible podcast. Um, that's about race. And so those are the first people I pitch and I just found the sort of generic pitch us email and they were nice enough to get back to me and to say, no, you know, and I, I <laughs> which is they were hard. Very sweet, very kindly uh, said no. To yeah. Me. But I mean, a lot of the time you just don't hear anything. Most yeah. of the time with things like when you're just cold emailing somebody, 
Um, but weirdly, that was encouraging even just to hear from them and to know, and it was a person. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, now I know for the next thing, now I have a person's email address and I can, you know, now I have a contact there, sort of built the positive from that. And so I wasn't sure where to go from there, um, but there's a website that I really like called The Root, which is much more sort of black voices, black culture, whereas Code Switch is simply about race, but it's, I think it kind of caters to everyone where The Root is more of a black site. Um, and I think the only reason that I pitched The Root so quickly was simply because the editor-in-chief's email was sitting there on the site. And so I thought, great, hello, I have this piece. And she emailed right back and said, I'd love to read it. And then she emailed right back and said, I'm going to run it Saturday. And that's, you know, uh, the stranger is one thing. Oh, I'm going to write about my record store and it's going to happen. But this was like, oh, shit. Now my <laughs> sort of weird life story that I'm not sure how people are going to react to is going to exist. And it's going to exist. You know, I knew this ahead of time. I was like, it's a pretty black site. And I think some black people are going to be unhappy with my position that hey, I'm racially mixed, but it hasn't been that hard for me, which if I'm really putting in a nutshell, has kind of been some of the lucky part of my life. Um, so that was really, really hard. I was really scared. They edited, you know, we edited it together, but not, not very heavily. It kind of came out how I wrote it. And the thing that propelled me more than anything in my writing were when that came out and the comments, which were brutal, they were terrible. People don't leave nice comments because that's not what the internet is. It was, you know, yeah. maybe 20 or so comments that were kind of what I just said. Like, oh, lucky you. You should hear my story. My life is fucking suck, blah, blah, blah. And that's terrible. And I feel bad for those people. But people are really cutting into me and digging into me and making it personal. And I got this weird feeling that I was like, oh, I can write things and it can make people feel a certain way. And I'm not, my, my goal is not to make people feel bad, but my goal is to sort of instill something. If, and we say this a lot at 4AD, which is a whole different thing in music. If everyone likes everything we're putting out, feels like we're doing something wrong, usually the things that do well are the things that, you know, whatever, 75% of the people we send it to early like, and then 25% say, I don't know, this is weird, or I don't like this, or I hate this. And those are the things that work. And this is wow. what this felt like all of a sudden. That's kind of when I knew I had something. Okay, two threads, two directions I want to take this. Yeah. One, did you, were you reassured? Do you think that history that you had in putting out music and getting that 75-25 split and understanding that, did that help propel you in this time of doubt? Where was, was that a muscle that you'd sort of conditioned? I think so, yeah. Because I, I remember immediately making that connection in my brain. I hadn't made it until I was reading these comments. And of course, I mean, I literally felt it physically in my stomach and in my chest. I was like, ugh. And then, but then I was able to separate and be like, these, these people don't hate me. They don't know me. They have their own feelings. And this is bringing up those feelings for them. And I hope they figure out, a, you know, they should write their story too, or they should do something. But, but yeah, that's, that's the moment when I made that connection. So I think you're right. I think it did give me a weird perspective and experience to, to draw from. Okay, keep to, pushing though. You put this yeah. out there. You put this out there, and like, but this, uh, I'm, I'm also, I want to like signpost for a second. Where I'm mm -hmm. going with this is, you were a music guy in right. my head, like music guy, creator, entrepreneur, having started the, you know, the, um, the record store, and when you sent me the original piece that you, I think the first piece that you sent me was New York Times piece, right. and. I was like, whoa, 
this is so good and I had no idea. Ah, right. And, and, but to me, that's part of this sort of this beauty and my, you know, my curiosity around these things is again, going back to whoever's watching and listening right now, there are thousands of people and you have an idea in your head and people don't know you as this or think about and, and is it fair to say this is, a, this is an opportunity? Like you, you, you've got nothing to lose. Like what was part of your psychology around putting this out? Did you feel like you had something to lose, but you had, cause it was, it was a day job. And did you feel like you could lose this because you, you know, your day job, right. just orient us. Yeah. I mean, the things like, no, the, my job was never a concern. I mean, my thing about writing, when I started to tell friends and people I was writing, of course, everyone was always like, Oh, you're going to, you're going to write about music. You're going to write about the music business. And I was like, no, that's, that sounds boring. That's what I do. And I love my job, but it's not, it's not literally my life, even though my whole life has been built on that strangely, you know, there are other dimensions that I'm not exploring. And that's what, that's what this is for to me. And some of it is absolutely connected to music, but, but it's different than that. So, so no, my, my job was, you know, my boss was supportive of that original piece and that that's never been a concern, but, um, but the, the concern is simply what will people think? And what will those close to me think? Way more than these commenters on the internet. I'm never going to see them. Who cares? What will my friends, my coworkers, my mom, my wife, what, what will all these people think? And everyone was really supportive. So that that helped a ton. But I mean, I'm trying to think the other risks involved. I, I know the thing that was in my head. And I've never been, I've never been good at figuring out that seeing the road and seeing the map. So I wasn't doing this saying, I'm going to publish eight pieces and then I'm going to write a book. And then, you know, all these things that actually ended up happening. And I think in the back of my mind, maybe I did know, but I was more taking it as it came and I was definitely pushing it. Suddenly felt like something, once you published a thing or two, I don't know how else to compare it. It felt like kind of being in a band and the sort of fun and attention that comes from it. And people saying nice things. There was a lot about it that reminded me of, because I hadn't played in the band in probably 10 years, of that, of getting off the stage every night and people saying, good job. You know, it was a, a version of that. So that was part of what was propelling me. But the risk was definitely just in what people would think and where I was going with it. And the fear of, I think then, even early on, I knew that I was, that I wanted to write a book and I would write a book, but I wasn't saying it yet because I was afraid to say that to somebody in case I didn't do it. Yeah. Does that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And that's, there's a huge takeaway for people who are listening and speaking of, of listening. I want to give a shout out to Carol in Scotland and Michelle in Irving, Texas. And where are oh, we got uh, Tamara in um, Buffalo, Minnesota. I don't know. Those sound like two, two different places to me, but it's, <laughs> it says Buffalo, Minnesota, comma USA. Um, Abby, Michelle, Anyway, people tuning in from all over the world, I want to give, give you all a Hi shout guys. out. And this idea of writing for yourself, being taking some risks, but recognizing that the risks are small, especially there's, a, I think, a brilliant insight in that the, the haters are not actually hating you. Right. It's, it's really about them. And that combination of a little bit of courage you know, not too much planning, a little bit of action and a little bit of uh, realizing that the world, the people that are going to respond are not the ones that you're, are actually on your short list. And that when your short list is responding with encouragement, these are your parents, your peers, your friends, your wife, your partner, your spouse, 
like that is just such a powerful combination. And I feel like it's available to so many people. Right. And yet, you know, and yet here we are, there's the reason that thousands of people are watching and listening to this is because there's something that's still in the way. So that makes me want to, I want to keep pulling on that thread in a second. I want to go down. You've written uh, more extensively about race since then. And I want to keep tracing on that is so powerful in the time that we're in right now. But I want to go back and say, how much do you attribute this to being around, putting yourself around, if you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, putting yourself around creators, entrepreneurs, risk takers, um, what, what, what role has that played for you? Yeah, that, that's 110% of it. I think, you know, weirdly early on, I think I knew that and I, I hate the term creative people, but you know what I mean? I mean, I've always been to, I was raised, I was born in New York city and my first school was an elementary school in Amherst, Massachusetts. That was a, a really, it was a, forget what it was called but it was basically part of umass's education school it was like an experimental elementary school wow. classrooms themselves there's a second story that was all mirrors that you could see from the classroom but you couldn't see what was behind them and what was behind them were grad students plugging in headphones watching all the classes and sort of studying how it worked i guess and i was there from first to first to fourth grade and it was incredible we never had homework it was very but you know super smart kids super international because so many professors kids were there and people from all over the world came would study for a couple of years so really fascinating interesting place that i loved and then we moved to, back to new york city where i was born and i went to the school called literate schoolhouse which is this sort of famous school that was like a communist school back in the day and where angela davis and all these people went same thing really interesting forward-thinking experimental school and that was kind of my base so i think without trying and without even realizing it I was always around a really big mix of interesting people and it had to have rubbed off on me. But then in sixth grade, we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. My mom worked for American Express and, uh, and they moved there and we did it. And that was the opposite. That was a very normal, straight, you know, the most normal place I'd ever been in my life. And I was there sixth grade through high school, but weirdly I loved it. And I think at that point I had enough of a base that I still gravitated towards, I mean, I'm friends with a lot of those people who are just as smart and interesting and creative. Um, and that, yeah, and then from there, I think you just naturally continue to gravitate towards those people. So that's, yeah, I think that is a huge part of my life. Is how much is that, how much of that is conscious? Like I want to spend more time with this person because mm. they, because they fire me up and I want to spend less time with this other person because they don't. Right. <sighs> I don't know the number. Is it 50-50? I mean, it definitely is partially conscious. I mean, then I guess the markers are, what are these people wearing? What bands are they listening to? You know, it might it might you might not be able to get deep in their heads when you're in sixth grade, but there are things that you can see that that person is into football, and I'm not really into football, but that person, that kid has a, whatever, minor threat shirt on. So I think I'll talk to him. <laughs> so it's, it's conscious Either, in a way. Either I don't believe we've met. My name's Ian, and I'm from Minor, minor Threat. <laughs> right. Okay. Wow. Legend. Um, well, I think this is a um, another well a question that I'm thinking is out there in the world, and I probably should. There mostly are just praise and gratitude here from Chicago, from Barbados is in the house. Let's you reason together, um, Yorkshire, England. Um, but a question that I'm curious about is do 
Is this something that you, if, if you can't identify it as a, as a clear, obviously, yes, I'm gravitating toward this kid with the minor threat t-shirt, you <laughs> sort of are 50-50 on that. What about now in your adult life? How precious are you with your time and your attention and your energy? Um, yeah, just I'll leave it at that. Right. I mean, I guess a lot more precious now just because I have less of it and it's sort of it's pretty partitioned. I mean, I have my job, which takes a lot of time and energy, and I have my side thing, which takes a lot of time and energy, which is writing, and I have a family and friends and everything. So, you know, I mean, it's, do I spend a lot of time searching out new people? And that's something I actually wish I had more time for in my life. And I would love, and you know, and I live in New York and a fascinating, diverse, interesting city. So, I wish there was time to do more of that, but I don't think I do as much as I should. Um, that's, that's fair, but it's that, yeah. I think it has a lot to do with setting up your your ecosystem, you know. Right. And I think living in living in Brooklyn, working at a record label, um, pursuing writing on the I mean, like it's just the alchemy is all there, and it's I I I, I, ha, I have a hard time reconciling and I reconciling the fact that if you are if you live in um, Springfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. and I'm just picking that, like literally, that was the only city that popped into my brain. And you live in the suburbs, and how do I cultivate this interesting life? Because Nabil, it's easy. You're sure. of mi- of mixed race. You were raised playing music in bands, going to these amazing schools. And yeah. Who am I? You know, I grew up white middle class born in the 80s parents are together like i don't have i don't have i'm not saying this is it's mostly me but there's a couple things that are not true there but i'm just trying to like generic middle america i didn't i had an easy normal childhood normal whatever that means why would anybody care what i had to write because there are a lot of people right now that that are challenging themselves with that question right which is funny because on paper i would be in the very hard position and you would be in the very easy position in the world right so it's weird that suddenly (laughs) i'm in the advantageous position but but that's hard and i and i mean i don't really know the answer it's you know i think there's always been this thing where people want an easy life until they realize that sometimes a more difficult or a, a less traditional life can often lead to a more interesting life if you can get through it yeah. Um, and again, even though I have a really sort of non-traditional, interesting background, it's never seemed hard or bad for me. I mean, whatever, my family was poor and there are all these interesting things, but I had a great childhood and I loved it. So it was never hard. But but yeah, how to do that if you're in in middle America, not surrounded by a lot of interesting stuff. Maybe you move. <laughs> maybe that's the simple thing which is easier said than done and can cost money and you know to, to uproot your life but well let's look at are, are you panting or is that a friend of yours nearby that's a dog let me get this dog out of here sorry <laughs> i love it i love it. downfall just like, i just want i want i want folks at home to know the dog that thinks we're playing it, it's, yeah. it's warm where nabil is but it's not that it warm <laughs> no um all right, let's go back. I, I promise we would um, go down that path and then come back to talk about what you've been writing about. You've been writing about race and race relations 
your history, yeah. yeah, your history, um, being ha- having a black father and a white mother, um, in not just the the uh, NPR, which you mentioned earlier, but the New York Times. Um, a, how did that happen? How did you you move into that world of writing? Yeah. And and B, talk about the timing and the reception and uh, your headspace around all this stuff because we're we're dying to know. Yeah, this is. I think where it got interesting for me, and so I published the Sonic Boom piece in The Stranger, and then the very personal, sort of more race piece in The Root, and then of course I was like, great, what do I do next? Now, whatever, I'm out, for lack of a better term. I've said my my grand statement and, and you know opened myself up, and, and it felt great. So now I can do anything. Now I can talk more about race or about whatever I want to, and it's fine. So what's next? And I, I didn't necessarily no i was still taking classes still doing lots of i guess what it's what's called free writing where you just write and just you know no one's ever going to see it it doesn't matter and so the weird thing that i've learned and it, it took me a while to figure it out is to really just is to pay attention meaning there's a lot going on in the world there's a lot surrounding you every day and as i started to think about writing it wasn't about me deciding what to write about it was about me paying attention to my surroundings and my world and picking from that and so I think the next piece that I published, my wife, who's a financial planner, went to a convention in Dallas and invited me to come for a few days. I was like, yeah, it sounds great. Whatever. We'll eat food and hang out in a new city and I'll just work at the hotel. So we went and I ended up um, going to the Dallas State Fairgrounds because it's just supposed to be this incredible the Texas State Fair, right? Incredible Art Deco buildings. It's sort of a weird thing. And, and went to the African American Museum that's there that's really amazing. And when you walk in in one of the exhibits, I was the only person there. It was like a Tuesday afternoon. There's this huge Ku Klux Klan suit just sitting there. And there's all this history and things about it. And it really terrified me. And of course, as I was thinking about all this, I was like, think about it. Think about it. This is the next thing. Write about it. Don't don't just walk away from this thinking, well, that was scary. Anyway, what's for dinner? So I went back to the hotel. I actually went to this restaurant and immediately just sat down and started writing about it and turned it into this thing. You know, it became kind of a research project. It turns out one of the biggest Klan rallies in America ever was in that exact spot. And there's this really sort of dark history um, about that exact space where I was that day. And so so that was the next thing. And I ended up pitching that, I think, to a few places and again, getting rejected, but still just thinking doesn't matter it's going to end up somewhere so i'm just going to you just keep going and you keep grabbing email addresses and this is really even though i was in new york and knew and knew a lot of people i did not know people in these circles so i was still just cold emailing people and looking up websites and trying to find editors and again got lucky with this one with huffington post and that ran and so now you know there's always and you'll get this chase there's always a business mind to this as well which i've always had this kind of entrepreneurial thing you know, I love playing in bands. I also loved all the record company stuff of it, the business part. So with this, the writing itself, I guess, is the creative part. But what's also fun is the business end of it. So, you know, I've never been one of those creators who's like, well, I can do the creative part, but man, but then I don't know what to do. I need someone else to help with that. I mean, of course, it's great to have people to help, but I love both parts. So so in my head, I was like, great, now I have this piece in The Stranger, I have this piece in The Root, and I have a piece in Huffington Post, so now I have these bylines, and that's something to tell the next person with the next thing. And so um, the New York Times thing, and that was definitely, I guess, my big break, came when my uncle, who I'm super close with, my mother's younger brother, is a jazz musician who made this really incredible sort of avant-garde jazz album called Valley of Search in 
1975 when I was a toddler. Um, and I've always loved that album. And it just felt like a good time to reissue it, strangely, that that kind of music was coming back. And there are a lot of people getting into those old records and vinyl, of course. And so, you know, he's, he's alive and well and still plays music all the time. And so we talked about it and decided that I would reissue that record on my own label that summer. This is 2018. Sorry, I've got a dog panting again here. Get away. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we did that. And... In the process, of course, you know, there are all these photographs and all this music and all these memories were coming up from my childhood and that time and place and everything. And so, <laughs> sorry about this. <laughs> no, it's all right, man. It's, we're live. This we should is, put him on camera. This, this, is, this, is, this is what Creative Live TV is about, right? Yeah. We're in your, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Some dogs live. Your porch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no barking, no. That's Get next away. level. <laughs> There we go. Got rid of him. So, so to my point from earlier, I think I really was paying attention. It was like, okay, how do I turn this into more than a project of just putting out this record? You know, I'm feeling really connected to my past right now. And just started writing about it. That was the easiest thing was I remember the apartment building where he lived and where this album was recorded and what it smelled like and what New York was like in 1975. Even though I was a toddler, I, I remember so much of this. So I just started writing about it and it got it to a point where I was like, oh, I think this feels like a short piece that obviously has to be in a New York centric outlet and the village voice is going under. There weren't many at the time. And so of course in my head, I was like, well, the New York times is, is the one. Um, and that's the biggest one. And I got super lucky in that a friend who I talked to knew an editor there and this wasn't, didn't end up being a music piece at all. I mean, it's about my uncle's album, but to me, it's more about my childhood in New York and that time and place. Um, so she talked to an editor who was in the Metro section, which was, you know, the section of New York City stories, basically. Um, and he, I remember her saying, like, he read it and he likes it. He thinks it's a bit inside baseball or something like that, meaning like it's, you know, very too specific, maybe not wide enough for this audience, which I was like, fair enough. Sure. It's about, you know, it's about me. <laughs> 1975 and one apartment building that no one knows about, but, you know, whatever. So, so that was kind of that. And then, then it just got into luck where I ran into another friend, told him that, and he said, oh, I know that editor. I'll drop him a note. And then I think maybe a week later, they, I got a call and he was like, hey, I want to run this. It's really great. And, uh, and that was kind of it. And for a moment, it got really scary because it was like, you know, there is this ethics thing at the New York Times and in a lot of papers where, you know, it's your uncle's album that you are releasing as a commercial product to sell and you're writing about it for the New York Times, that might be a problem. Let me check. And I was so terrified for about 24 hours. Well, he said, I want to run this, but I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to. But they came back. We, you know, we changed enough in it that it doesn't sound like that. It's, you know, it's referred to as a recording. Um, and it came out and that was incredible. And that felt like a big thing. And that was the moment where I decided to make a website. I'd always wanted to make one, but I was like, you know, I'm not a writer until I have not only a handful of pieces, but one in a sort of major paper yeah. um and so that's where it all changed right? i was like well now i have you know four or five things out and one is in the new york times and that's you know family members and friends and everyone notices that i want to i want to read something from an NPR piece for those folks who are uh, not familiar with your work i've never been a father and i've never had a father Though my dad and I live in the same city, our paths have never crossed. Occasionally, someone asks me how he's doing. It surprises me every time, and I usually respond with something like, quote, you'd probably know better than I would. 
which feels confrontational and often leads to a slightly apologetic, less biting explanation of the fact that I've never known him. I hope I inherited his best qualities and missed out on his worst, but I can only guess what those qualities are. For much of my life, even my racial identity has been somewhat of a question. My mother, who is white, chose to have me and raise me on her own. My father is black, but because I never was a part of his life, I've never held a strong black identity or I felt I belonged in any single race. I grew up in a diverse and liberal surrounding where if anyone asked, I was racially mixed and that was fine. I'm often asked the question, what are you? And it goes on from there, but like this, this thought about identity yeah, is how important is that for you? How important is understanding who you are, where you're from, what's your DNA, like why, why the archeological um, dig at this point in your life right. on, on your own identity? I think it's, it, it has never been that important to me. And again, I think it's because even though I've technically been missing, I didn't know my father, my life felt very full and I had a lot of great people surrounding me and I always felt taken care of and safe and had a really happy childhood. So but something happened, I think, once I started writing that I started exploring that part of my brain more and it became more important. And I think 23andMe is obviously part of that because it was so easy to find out more just because I never knew much about my dad's side. Yeah. Um, so it's only newly important to me. It's not like a man, my whole life. I mean, I guess what I just said there is my whole life. I've never known anything, but it didn't seem to matter for most of my life. But now it matters. I think maybe just because it's so easy to find out more. There's just a, there's such a powerful message embedded in there that like just through the act, through the act of writing, these things Mm -hmm. have sort of, they've, um, I don't know the layers of the onion or or you're actively peeling them back rather. Yeah. Do you have have a practice? Do you have a daily writing practice now? Like what's your, I don't, I I know people who do and I don't, but it's interesting. I mean, I know your book starts with that Maya Angelou quote that I don't remember exactly what it is, but basically that you can't run out of creativity. The more more you you use, the 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 more more you you use, the more you have. Yeah. And it feels like that. So every time I think, God, I don't know what to write about. Again, I pay attention and something else comes up. Um, so I don't have a daily practice. I try to sometimes, but I'm not as good at free writing. Basically just thinking I'm going to write for an hour every morning, no matter what it is, no matter how. I, I don't do that. I'm usually working on something specific, and sometimes I won't do it for a week, and I'll come back to it, and I find that I'm sort of refreshed and in a better place. So yeah. I think the daily practice works really well for a lot of people, but not as well for me. Well, let's... I'm going to pull on another thread here. That's something we touched on a little bit earlier and it has to do with the people you surround yourself with. I mean, clearly you have a long history of being around creator creators and entrepreneurs. You talked about that. You talked about even, you know, in your young life as a student being raised in um, an interesting school environment. Right. Right now there's somebody who's listening to this and saying, that doesn't that doesn't describe <laughs> that, who, who's who who are we featuring on the podcast <laughs> this is uh god i'm actually forgetting their names callie and somebody else they're crazy <laughs> spuds mckenzie dogs you need to get out of here go away <laughs> sorry you know how microphones work it sounds like they are on the mic like yeah <laughs> they're close <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, well, right, 
right now, again, there's someone who's like, that's not me. You gave advice earlier, which was move. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm just wondering is, it seems like that's prohibitive. And yet there's a, you know, every single person has a story to tell. And what I am so enamored by with your world is that your story did not unfold till you're in your forties, right? This is, this is right. It feels like it's just starting in a way it's, it's exciting in that way. Yeah. And so there's this just hardcore judgment that I find in, in the creator entrepreneur community because it's just constant, like, comparison to where other people were at whatever part in their career and by this time lady gaga had had you know 22 number one you know hits and she'd starred in three you know films and run 10 grammys and and then you're just getting started and yet (laughs) this is one of my one of the reasons i was very excited to have you on the show yeah you've had a very successful career as an entrepreneur and as a musician and now you're entering a, a completely new phase as a writer where you're almost going back to square one. How much of what you've learned along the way is um, being applied to this new endeavor? In, in, in short, what role did your mastery in one thing play in your ability to um, excavate an entirely new universe? Right. I mean, I think everything leads to the next thing, right? I mean, it's, as much as, there's this part of me, I mean, I'm 48 now that thinks, you know, of course there's like this fear of aging and like, what am I, I have to hurry up and do things because I don't want to be old still trying to, to do stuff. But it, the, on the other hand, I think it's exciting for me to sit here at 48 and think I've done a lot of cool things that I'm really excited about and am doing those things and proud of, but I'm not done. You always want to be pushing and doing new things and, and trying new experiences. That's what keeps life exciting. But But yes, so much of what's happened in the past feeds what happens in the future and allows me to feel more comfortable taking risks. And, you know, when, when Jason and I opened Sonic Boom, we were 25 and we were both working for minimum wage at another record store, Easy Street, which is great in Seattle, and thought we should open our own record store. And that at the time was a huge risk. I mean, that's, you know, we'd both gone to college. All of our friends were getting real jobs. That was a time in the 90s when it was pretty easy to get a real job. And all of our friends were you know, had expense accounts and wore suits and went to work and they loved it. They were thrilled and they took us out to dinner and everything. And I don't know how or what I would have done, but I suppose with my degree, I could have gotten a job out of college, but it just wasn't even, it's more than there was like a little voice in my head. There was a really loud voice in my head that was like, no, what you want to do is work in music and you also want to play in a band and you can't get a real job because it'll prevent you from doing that. And I think that voice has always existed in some way and it's not a voice it's not like a magical thing it's 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 yourself knowing in a way what you're supposed to be doing and taking risks and um and so now yeah now that voice says you have a great life and you're really lucky and keep pushing and do different things and it knowing that most of the time that i've done that it's worked makes me feel better that it will continue to do so i guess so well, that, that's, you just said the thing that I thought you might say, which is there's this trust and this sort of an inertia that the more you take a chance and even if it doesn't go horribly wrong, if it's like a little bit bad, neutral or good. Right. 
And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. What role has trust played in your, and, and trust, the trust is not, maybe it's in the universe. Maybe it's, it's, it's in your circle of friends or maybe it's in yourself. What, what you tell me what role trust has played yeah. if at all. And I think and trust in what, right with me, it's a trust in myself and that I am capable of making good decisions for myself that will, that not, you know, it won't always work. I mean, the interesting thing is that I can't, I know I've failed to do things. I know I've asked people for things and they've said no, whether it's trying to get a job or trying to get in a band or trying to publish a piece and having five people turn it down and three others not respond. But I don't remember those things. And and I, I think and hope that's a healthy thing for me. It's like when you go to Vegas, most people lose money, but you remember the wins because those are fun and those are exciting and whatever, winning that blackjack hand and everyone cheering, that's what you remember, even if you walk away, whatever, $500 in the hole. And it's a weird analogy, but it kind of makes sense for this because I can't, those moments are blips when things haven't happened for me and they absolutely exist. They're just not what I've chosen to focus on. What you do is you use those to try to do the next thing or it sends you in a different direction and you refocus your energy. So the, the trust is absolutely the right term. And for me, it's just trust in myself that I can sort of take the information that exists and decide what to do with it and make it into something positive. Even if it's somebody turning me down for something, then you go to the next thing and try to make that work. Amazing. How, how much of the current BLM movement, the zeitgeist that we're all experiencing right now, has that played a role in giving you more courage, more optimism, more of a desire to put your your take on race out into the public, or has it is it is there um, is there a, a side to that that is not obvious? Like how has this current time? How how do you relate to this current time and right. your, your writing? Um, I mean, it, you know, it became an obvious focus of my writing, I guess, obviously before this, this current moment, which is sadly only a month or so old right now. Um, really once I started writing, that was a focus. So, but, but it's certainly propelled it and it's certainly part of it. I mean, the, the, the recent New York times piece with Ed Eckstein, I mean, what that was, um, after all the George Floyd stuff and all these horrible things happening, there were these two women in the record industry who, who called for blackout Tuesday, which was basically, saying everyone in the music business should take this particular Tuesday off um, sort of as a boycott, but also just to, to think and reflect and use it as a positive time to, to try to make change. And so my company did that. And I remember thinking, well, what should I do on that day? Um, and the backstory is that Ed Eckstein is, was the president of Mercury Records, which is the label that my band Lemon signed to back in the 90s. And he was the first ever black president of a major label in America, which is, which is crazy because I think he got that job in 1990. And it blew my mind that it had taken that long for that to happen, but it had. And when we met him back then, we didn't get that much time with him. And so I didn't get to really ask him the questions I wanted to. But as I got into my book, which I'm working on, I kind of look back to that day and, uh, and I was in LA where he lives in January this year and thought, huh, I wonder if I could get a hold of Ed and ask him some things, the things I would have asked him 25 years ago. And so I did. And uh, he was really receptive. And we had this incredible lunch. And he told me all these great stories about his life. And, uh, and that was kind of that. And so Blackout Tuesday, a few months later, when I thought about what I would do that was positive and constructive and, and 
sort of related, I was like, oh, of course I know what to do. I'm going to call Ed and just wrap with him that afternoon. And then, like I was saying before, the business part of my brain turned on and was like, well, I should also try to pitch it somewhere and make it into a thing and put a spotlight on him and, of course, my writing and everything. And so that, again, luck and timing and being in the right place. I emailed an editor at the Times who I don't know and just said, kind of told a shorter version of the story I just told you and said, I'd love to talk to him. And she said, great. Talk to him tomorrow. We're going to run it this week while it's still in the news cycle. And that terrified me because everything else I've pitched has always been like, okay, I've written this piece. I've really honed it down. I've shown it to one or two kind of writer friends who've given me some comments. Now it's ready to show to an outlet and say, hey, will you run this? And this was the opposite. This was, hey, I have an idea. I want to talk to this guy and write about it for you know, one of the biggest papers in the world. And they said, great, it's due in 48 hours. <laughs> so, so, so that led to the conversation, but um, I mean, I think going back to BLM and everything that's happening now, this has already been in my head and it's already been in my writing and now it's exciting because it's, it's more out there in the world and people are more open to it. You can see the bestseller list is insane and it's great. Um, so overdue. Oh it's God. crazy. Yeah. So I think it's, it's less propelling it, but I'm really excited that it's happening and I'm happy to be some small part of it. Yeah, I, I don't, at the risk of being prescriptive, especially around something as charged as the racial injustice in our country, yeah. I want to, if I can excavate that, um, the piece of just doing you, like the fact that you've been working on this and writing about your mixed race heritage, your um, like un, un, you know, unpeeling the onion or whatever we've, right. we've, we've talked about. You've been working on that for you know x number of years and then this is a moment where the market has come to you and if right i, I don't want to again tie the market to a movement of racial justice but if you use the example the new york times list as the market right then like that to me is there's so there's again take the the context away just for a moment and look at the you focusing on you and at some point, the market pays attention to you, and it will probably happen several different times across a, very, a variety of subjects. This was true for me as a photographer. Action sports was not cool when I started taking pictures of me and my <laughs> friends skateboarding and surfing. No one could give two shits. And right. then the SUV company started marketing this outdoor sort of action sports lifestyle to sell shit. Right. And I, in the course of like five years, my I 10x'd my income. Wow. By doing the exact same thing I was doing five years ago. Right. And, and, and that's a huge thing that, you know, it, going back to music again, I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, here's my band. Can you give me some advice? And it's always such a weird one for me because my advice is always like, do you like what you're doing? And the answer is usually yes. It's like, great. Keep doing Got to keep doing it and figure out a way to get in front of people. But, you know, if you're looking for advice, that's like change the songs or more guitars or whatever. That That's I don't have that advice. You need to hope that people come around to what you're doing and the most control you can have over that is to, to just keep doing it and get better at it. Yeah. You know? And, and double down on, on you, like, right. Yeah. That's cause that's really what you've done. I guess. Uh, so. yeah. and relative re related, slightly different. You have spent a lot of time around people who have pursued their passions and, created a living and a life that they have desired and is there are, are there lessons 
that you can share. I mean, let's take your story out of it for a second. You as a record, right. you have re you as a record executive, looking at the lives of people who have you know poured their heart and soul on the stage or the page or um, on the screen. And any takeaways from that? And the biggest one is that every single one of those people that I can think of has taken risks and put themselves out there and it's easy to look at them once they're doing well or once there's crowds or once there's records or whatever but every one of those people had a first show every one of those people had a show where people booed or only three people came or they felt they were terrible or others felt they were terrible there's i think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who does anything interesting who doesn't have that experience and that's you have to get through that and you have to keep going and it's what makes you better at what you do and, and that's everyone I, I know would say that have you had conversations with these folks about any any that you can share i'm trying to think about i mean i actually can't think of any obviously i'm sure i have but well the fact that you are confident <laughs> in being able to say it and feel it you know that that tells us enough and i think that there's a takeaway in there right like yeah and again people are um, people in the comment section right now are it's just a it's a great reminder that oh my god you mean Grimes had a show that was her first show so right <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah like, of course she did that, yeah exactly but that concept is so far removed from our psychology that we've like literally forgot it right and even when, when we put out our first Grimes record which was Visions she was years into her career and that album did really well but people thought Oh, she is an overnight success. And she had worked so hard and done so many cool things before we were even involved. You know, she that was she did what she did and we helped amplify it. And that's you know, again, people don't always see that part of someone's career, but it's usually there. And you know, there are very few people who just pop up and are in the right place at the right time. And it does happen, but it's not a good plan. Have you ever felt pressure? I'm I'm reading a comment right now from Tony Veronica. She's saying, thank you so much for this. You know, we need to stop comparing ourselves. It can quickly turn from inspiring to defeating. If you're looking at where someone else is at some juncture right, in their right. career. Um, but at, at, at she, she goes, continues on here. It's a rather long comment. And ultimately what it comes around to is what about like this concept of settling into a career and to a family relative to your dreams? You know, you've talked about um, your wife, AJ, and mm -hmm. what role has the the family or circle of friends played in either promoting, hindering, motivating, um, decoupling your identity with like what what role have 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 your friends and family played in your either you know your success or struggling because you're worried about what they think all right i mean my wife's played a huge role and she's incredibly talented smart ambitious and you know around the same time all this was happening when i was starting to write not only was was she encouraging but she made this massive career shift where she had a real job and it was i think she'd just gotten a raise and it was the first time in her life when she felt like she could save a little bit of money and and she got interested in money oddly for that reason because she realized that a lot of her friends couldn't give her advice on what to do and a long story she started this amazing podcast called money explained and one thing led to another and two years later 
she's a certified financial planner with her own firm with her friend who's a CPA and they're killing it. And, uh, you know, and she just went and did that with no one else pushing her, no one asking her to do it. She, you know, she quit her job. She did so. So again, you know, was I, did I gravitate toward her the night that I met her because I saw all of that in her probably in some way. Um, so it goes back to your thing about kind of community and, and who you spend your time with. Um, I'm kind of forgetting the, the rest no, of the no, question. But, just, you know. like, is that, is that a, you know, is, is that, that is a non-traditional, um, and I'm saying this, I'm trying to, I'm checking myself while I'm saying this, relative to the experience that um, we are conditioned to understand socially and culturally in our country, the fact that at 40 something year, you know, years of age, you could switch careers or add a new career, maybe is not even switched because you're still an executive at 4AD. Right. And like, this is a new, this is a new paradigm. And I'm wondering if like you feel resistance to this and you know, or is it, does it feel natural to you? And for anyone, I was wondering if you had some advice for anyone who, you know, is feeling that, wait a minute, how do I reinvent myself at 42? Right, or right. it's not just like, I got, you know, kids and, uh, you know, responsibilities and a mortgage. And, you know, these are stories that we tell ourselves in part, they might be true, but the, the hurdles that they're, you know, are, are they real hurdles? Or are they just in our head? What's your, what's your philosophy? I mean, I guess they're, they're both, they're real hurdles and they're in your head. I mean, people, kids certainly make a difference. I don't have kids and I don't know if I would have been able to do the things I've done with kids. Kids obviously take time and money, which are two big things. Um, and so it's to go back to the sort of not quitting my job, but rather starting to do things. So yeah, to your point, I haven't had a career shift to me. I'm still very much a record executive. I have this great job at 4 I love it. And that's what I want to continue to do. At the same time, I got to get my feet wet and publish one little thing and then publish another little thing and turn it into a bigger thing, all the while working my real job and then turned it into a book, which, uh, you know, a, a big publisher is going to publish, which is just crazy to me. It still blows my mind that that that's a thing and that someone else read this and decided that was a good idea. Um, the world obviously still has to see it. <laughs> we'll right. see. And, and of course, there's still fear of that. But, but you know, it's a... Uh, the thing I think is, it, it's people don't, you don't need to stop what you're doing to do something else. I think that's a huge thing. It might take you a little longer to do the new thing if you're unable to stop it. You don't need to, you don't have to quit your job to start your art practice or your music practice or whatever. You can write music. You can get up an hour earlier every morning. You can stay up late every night. You can spend time on the weekends recording. Music's a harder one um, because, well, until now, so much of it required touring, being on the road, especially when you're smaller, it's the best way to build it is to play live. Um, but now suddenly there's a level playing field. So maybe now's a great time if you <laughs> want to be a musician to figure out, you know, whatever it is, the, learn the recording program and you can learn all this stuff online on YouTube and, and start writing music and start selling it. You can, you can do that. It's, you know, you're clearly a multi-hyphenate, right? We've, this is a thread that has been very consistent in our conversation over the past hour. I'm curious, how do you describe yourself at parties? What do you do? Hey, Bill, what's up? Good to meet you, man. So what's your gig? What do you do? Right. I mean, I would generally, depending on the party, I would say I run a record company. That's my general line. And, and I just keep it at that. 
and and I'm also I'm, I'm I think I, I am a bit humble in situations like that and tend to to maybe brag less than I even could or should but I would never say oh I run a record company and we're putting out all these great records and I also just had an article in the New York Times and have a book coming out or whatever I would I would never run through the thing I think I would just I still identify very much as a record company guy and is that safe why do you do that well it's true <laughs> it's the thing I've done the longest it's you know I guess it's safe but it's it can also lead to other things because still most people generally don't know what that is which is always a surprise to me <laughs> it's always like oh, oh so you're a record producer no I'm not a record producer producer is the person who's actually in the studio recording the records which is not what I do you know it's it always goes maybe I should just say I'm a writer maybe from this conversation on <laughs> this is why I'm asking Right. And I think it's a conversation that so many of us have in our heads. Like, what am I now? And for me, it was the opposite. I started calling myself a photographer before I was legitimately like established in that world as almost like a signal to the universe. Right. Know? That's an, that's an important thing to do though. That, yeah. that makes sense. If you're trying, if you know you want to get somewhere, then make it happen. That's part of it is believing it and putting that out there. Uh, Ash Jensen from Facebook wants to know if you have uh, a few favorite musicians and a few favorite mentors that you respect and or look up to. Hmm. In general, let me think. I mean, I'm a huge fan. It's not a musician in particular, but of the band Bad Brains, who is a oh, legend. Oh. late 70s, early 80s punk band from Washington, D.C. for Black Men, which was very interesting at the time and I guess still is now, oddly. Um, and I think the reason I look up to them, I mean, they're one of my favorite bands of all time, and I love the music and I love the politics and everything about it. But, but what's really interesting to me is that I think they did something that I needed at the time. I'm a product of really early MTV, like early 80s, and so I was into whatever, Van Halen and Motley Crue, but also the human league and kind of all the new wave bands that they were playing. And to me, there wasn't, I didn't know, I didn't see the line that existed between new wave and metal, which was a thing in the early eighties MTV. Cause they played those two kinds of music, but to me, they just played music and, you know, Nirvana gets a lot of the credit for fusing different styles, which they absolutely did. And Jane's addiction before them. But I think bad brains was kind of the band, at least for me that brought together a bunch of different things. And obviously with this huge race element, but kind of, showed me that you could mix a bunch of things and bring a bunch of people together musically. So that's my, my musical one, um, on a personal, or I guess maybe even business mentor level. I mean, I don't have anybody, I don't have anybody famous. I had a really amazing internship from college at Polygram Records. Um, there was a woman named Steph who, you know, was a record person in Seattle who I worked for and she was great in a bunch of ways. I mean, I learned a ton about the record business from her, and that was sort of my first experience there. But she was also just a really good person. And I remember the way she treated people when we went to record stores and even people who were difficult to deal with. She was great at dealing with them. And I remember one particular thing she told me, because I met so many people in that job, she's like, you know, when someone doesn't understand your name, Nabil, you need to say it again. And you say, hey, I'm Nabil. And if they say what? You say, Nabil. It's an Arabic name, Nabil. And she's like, then you've said it three times. And I remember that line specifically, but that was a really interesting thing that from that day on, I paid a lot more attention to. And it's good to have people like that. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Bad Brains. What was the name of the track that uh, I think the singer, the, the rumor had it that the singer sang that from <laughs> prison? Sacred Love. Yeah, I think it's true. <laughs> it's a really crazy story. He, uh, while they were recording that album, I Against I, he, there's a documentary on that album. So the producer, Ron St. Germain, I think they were almost done with the vocals. And he said, yeah, yeah, we actually got to get done today because I have to go serve 60 days for a cannabis charge tomorrow. And they're like, what? You, you didn't tell us this. He's like, yeah, yeah. So let's let's run the vocals now before I have to go. And they got everything done except for that song. And so they figured out a way for him to do it over the payphone from prison. And when you listen to it, you can hear it sounds like, you know, scratchy and different. Oh, but it's such like that is to me that epitomizes punk and DIY and that yeah. ethos of like, no, no, we're going to make what would typically be a bug. We're making that a feature. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like that the, the, the through the telephone yeah um yeah and for those of you if you're not familiar with that you need to go check check that out right now sacred love bad brains um God, yeah pretty incredible story incredible yeah. um my man i i i keeping you longer than i promised just because i don't want to let you go we haven't hung yeah, out in a long this time is great this has been super fun we even got rid of the dogs <laughs> <laughs> i want to i want to um spend the last few minutes talking about your upcoming book um yeah I, i'm I think the uh, the folks who are listening and yours truly are very happily seduced by your writing, your art, um, the way that you've um, you've just built an amazing life arc, and to have that captured in a book that you've written, um, I I hope I'm getting an advanced copy. We'll have you back on the show. Of course, we're, yeah, we're yeah. Good at move, we're good at moving some units. Um, <laughs> Sounds fun, but. Tell us a little bit about the journey of um, getting uh, a major publisher to, to write, to, to uh, publish your memoir, and then yeah. what, what can we expect from it? Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes along the same path to where I, you know, I'd written, published, you know, whatever, five or six pieces, and at the same time had tons and tons of writing that hadn't been published that was lots of personal stuff. And in a way, it was very compartmentalized, meaning like, I can write all these stories about the bands I was in. I can write all these stories about my childhood. I can write all these stories about race. I can write these stories about the record store. Um, and then I started to realize that this kind of, there's enough stuff here that I bet I could make it into a memoir, make it into the story of my life, I guess for lack of a better term, and talk about something. Why would anyone want to read this? I mean, those feelings <laughs> when you're just doing start to finish your life. But um. But I just decided it was something I needed to do. And I think it was sort of a self-challenge. Like, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can make this into something that feels like it has a story and an arc. I mean, you, you know, you don't want it to just be like, and then this happened, and then this happened. And, and the arc is really, you know, plays on kind of the first 10 years of my life, which my mother was on welfare and she was a single mom the whole time. My father never left us. The, the agreement was she wanted to get pregnant. And he said, fine, I'm not going to be in the picture. And so... It's the opposite of the sad, you know, father left kind of stuff. It's very deliberate. My mother's incredible. Um, and so that's that's sort of where it all starts. And yeah, we're on welfare and we're, you know, I'm a racially mixed kid and all this stuff. And it's all things that you would look at as very difficult and very disadvantageous. But it wasn't. I had this incredible life and really supportive, you know, nurturing people around all the time. Um, and so I, I guess the, the big picture is 
despite these sort of hurdles, I've had this wonderful life and here are a bunch of things that have happened during it. And some of them are really funny to me. Some are really sad, but it's all part of the whole thing. Don't stories need conflict? They do. I mean, I go to jail. Uh, the <laughs> there is conflict. Thickens. I mean, it's not. It's not. I guess it, it, it's not all good. But my, I guess my point is more that it's not all bad, even though it sounds like it could be. Thank you so much for being on the show, bud. Uh, it's been a blast. What's the best place if people want to, you know, read more of your writing, see the uh, the bands that you're curating and signing? Give us a couple of uh, coordinates on the internet for yeah. Um, but just my full name, Nabilairs dot com, is my website. That's all the writing stuff kind of chronologically listed out um for a yeah oh. n-a-b-i-l for those who are yeah. listening rather than watching the broadcast right now right a a y e r s yep and then for 4ad which is the record company i work for that's just the number four letter a letter d as in dog 4ad.com and that's as you mentioned the national and grimes and future islands and a ton of great bands i'm lucky enough to work with man um I didn't yeah. know that you 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 guys did the Pixies reissue and that wow well, that that was crazy I mean so well yeah I mean all those Pixies albums were on 4AD originally those first five five records and uh, you know that's when whatever I was in high school listening to them it was crazy yeah. so <laughs> so influential so, too yeah so they, so Doolittle sort of the biggest one finally it took forever but went platinum a million sales in America last year and it was incredible to be able to you know, make this platinum record award and actually hand it to the band who are truly like teenage idols of mine to be. And it was at Madison Square Garden. I mean, the whole thing was just oh magical. God. It was crazy. This is another look into the uh, inspired and charmed life that you've <laughs> led. Um, thanks so much for your time, bud. Thank well, you, Chase. It's been great. I'm grateful to have you on the show. I'm already looking forward to the next one. Congrats on the book and, uh, and all the pieces. So inspiring to read what you've written um and thanks for being a good friend thank you hope to see you soon in person hey that was an awesome episode but before you bounce just i got three quick thoughts first thank you for being in this community it gives me so much juice i can't even tell you so much juice that when i hit publish and this show goes out into the ether that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show so thank you second it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds, tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.